and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Chris Voss has an extremely impressive resume and bio, so I'm going to try to give you some highlights, but know that you can go online, you can find him on the internet, and learn a little bit more about the specifics of the work that he's done over the years. He's used many years of experience in international crisis and high stakes negotiations to develop a unique program that applies globally proven techniques to the business world through his company, which is called the Black Swan Group. Prior to 2008, Chris was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI, as well as the FBI's hostage negotiation representative for the National Security Council's hostage working group. During his career, he's also represented the U.S. government as an expert in kidnapping at two international conferences sponsored by the G8. And in today's conversation, Chris will talk about experiences as a negotiator, whether it's kidnapping or whether it's something in your business. And I even get into negotiation with my children. 
Before becoming the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator, Chris served as the lead crisis negotiator for the New York City division of the FBI, and he really was in some precarious negotiations, and he talks a lot about those experiences in his wonderful book, which is called Never Split the Difference, uh, which has sold over 2 million copies, by the way, and I highly, highly recommend the book. Chris was a member of the New York City Joint Terrorist Task Force for 14 years. Obviously, New York City has had terrorist attacks and has had all kinds of experiences. And Chris has been in the weeds, in the trenches, fighting against some of the toughest, most difficult stuff that our country has faced. During his 24-year tenure, Chris has really experienced so many different uh, situations. So he's trained uh, not just on the field and in the trenches, but he's also gone to Scotland Yard and the Harvard Law School so he could learn more about negotiation. And I think you'll find that he's someone who definitely has applied experience. There's no question about that. But he also loves to read. He loves to listen to podcasts. He loves to learn from science and research. So Chris is this amazing blend of authentic, real street smart, uh, coupled by a humility and a, a, a strong, strong desire to learn that I think you will connect with. He's also been a teacher. So he's taught business negotiation in MBA programs as an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business and at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. In addition to that, he's gone all over the world to teach as a guest lecturer from places like Harvard University to the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, and even to places like Germany to teach what he's learned uh, along his journey and his experience. So Chris is a teacher. There's no question about that. He's also a keynote speaker, uh, and he's an amazing author. So I know you're going to learn from Chris. I certainly did. So here is Chris Voss. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Love your work, uh, especially Never Split the Difference. I know I'm not alone on that. So congrats on all, all the success the book has had up until now. Where I thought I'd start is in my world and negotiations that that I've had to deal with, specifically this morning. So I've got two kids, uh, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, uh, and my daughter getting her out of bed and getting her to school this morning proved to be quite a challenge. And right. I find... Uh, as a father, I know you're a father, that parenting uh, causes me to negotiate on a regular basis, willingly or unwillingly. And this morning is a really good example. So uh, it's 7.45 in the morning. My daughter has to be out the door by 8.15 and she's still in bed. Uh, she went to bed later than she should have the night before. So she's a little groggy coming off a weekend of of staying up probably a little bit late as well. And I was tasked with trying to get her out of bed when she would much rather see her mother than her father. And at the time, her mother is downstairs working out with a trainer. And so it was a little unusual because Mondays, my wife is usually helping get her out of bed. But here we are at 745 in the morning, and I'm tasked with trying to get her out of bed. So I wake her up gently, and she tells me she doesn't want to get up, doesn't want to go to school, doesn't want to get out. And I I sort of try some of the tactics then that you share where I, I say, Hey, it seems like you're a little tired. Um, you know, have you looked at what time it is? And she looks over and she puts the blanket over her head and we're back to, to sort of ground zero here. Uh, I then say, would you like me to help 
get you your clothes. She just is unresponsive to me. And so this continues to go on and I feel as though I'm kind of stuck. Uh, so we get to the point where I say, all right, well, we got to leave at 8.15. Uh, I'm heading downstairs. Do you want anything for breakfast? Nothing. Uh, I pick my head back up and she starts to get out of bed. And so we start to get her moving. But for the next 30 minutes, it is a challenge getting her shoes on. Fortunately, my wife kind of bailed me out and she said, you know what, I'm done. Why don't I take her to school? And so she kind of got what she wanted um, and didn't get the full dad experience. Um, but I'm curious for you as far as what you've seen and what you've observed in raising kids, it's probably paramount for me in my life right now. What advice or what tactics might I have used uh, in the future to help with that scenario? Ah, great question. I mean, kids are a challenge, right? And, and you know, I think really a parent's job is as much as anything else, you know, uh, uh, guidelines, rules, discipline, teaching kids what, what works. Um, but nobody's going to be great at negotiation first thing in the morning. You, you know, you got a groggy human being there and, and teaching them how to think this isn't particularly the time that they're going to be capable to process stuff. Like I, I know that mirroring works great with kids of all ages when you're trying to get them to talk. Um, I've had a lot of people say it's the first time their teenagers ever started open up with them and the mirroring at any age helps people think. I mean, it helps stimulate somebody's thinking, but you know, you're talking about a kid first thing in the morning, but then there's the, the, the negotiation approach. Like you were trying to get her to say, yes, you're trying to be collaborative, you know, black swan group. We're out of the yes business entirely. We don't try to get people to say yes. We think about, you know, what, what's a no response because no makes people feel safe and secure. And, and then also demeanor, like uh, early in the morning, kidding around, you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. I mean, how can you playfully get your kid out of bed early in the morning while you're being aggravated and annoyed, which is a very hard period of time for you to be pleasant, upbeat and playful and joyful, if you will. Um, but people are smarter when they're laughing and they're having a good time. Their brain kicks into gear. Maybe you, uh, that's an opportunity to, you know, to playfully get your child out of bed in the morning. But it's an extra challenge because you feel under the gun. You're looking at the clock. There's a lot of challenges for you, like there aren't any negotiation. But you're going to get farther and you're going to be smarter the more playful, the more pleasant you are uh, in the morning. And, you know, then there's always, you know, you're the SWAT team in, in this particular instance. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not above, you know, playfully pulling a kid out of bed. <laughs> You know, you're showing them, you're showing them rules, you're showing them guidelines. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, you're, you're teaching your kids in a lot of different ways. So those are just opportunities, uh, ideas that I would share with you uh, in a moment. Oh, it's so good. And I wanted to bring it because I thought it was, it was real and it was hard and it was difficult. And I'm fully immersed in your work as I'm prepping for this podcast and it was still difficult. Let's just unpack three of the tools that you brought up. So uh, you said, we're not in the getting to yes business. Uh, we believe in getting people to say no. Can you start with that and just explain a little bit more what you mean by that and why you think getting her to have said no would have been potentially a helpful part of the process? Well, like, you know, across the board, um, uh, trying to get people to say yes is a bad idea, no matter, no matter, no matter what age. You know, because people always wonder, like, what am I letting myself in for? What have I agreed to if I say yes to this? You know, you're trying, would you like help with your clothes? 
well or whatever you asked her if she liked help with that you know there's a whole bunch of agreements in there that are implied you're agreeing to get out of bed now you're agreeing to this you're agreeing to that i mean there are four or five uh hidden collaborations in there in in that uh in that yes you know what's a potential no do you want to go to school hungry do you want to go to school on an empty stomach do you want to have to stay late uh and pay the penalty for being late you know uh the you know consequences do you want this negative consequence it would be probably how I might tee up some experimental, no-oriented questions. Do you, do you want to go to school in your pajamas? Uh, do you want to you want to go to school uh, smelly because you didn't brush your teeth? You know what? What a uh, uh, no-oriented questions occasionally is a great way to tee up negative consequences. People feel safe and protected when they say no. Um, and we find this across the board, like it's ridiculous what people are comfortable saying no to. I mean, ridiculous at all levels. I've coached employees to say to their boss when they've been given an impossible task, do you want me to fail? Like if you can use a negotiation skill with someone who's, quote, in a superior position to you and have them not blow up, then it's a it's a great test of a skill. There's something about saying no that makes people feel safe and protected. It also triggers thinking in their head that you want to have triggered without them being upset because you've triggered it. So that's probably the way I would have changed some of those, some of those questions in the morning. You're trying to be collaborative. You're trying to be helpful. You're trying to be respectful. But each one of the yeses you were trying to get probably had about three or four agreements packed into it that she wasn't ready for at that point in time. And it's interesting because do questions are close-ended questions. And yeah. I remember going to a sales training. One of my first jobs out of college was in sales and they put us through this training and it was open-ended questions, open-ended questions, open-ended questions. And in your book, you talk a lot about what and how and the power of those questions, but those are, are close-ended questions. So I'm curious for you, how you think about the power of close-ended questions and when they're appropriate compared to when an open-ended question might be appropriate and how do we blend those types of questions to make our questioning more effective? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, closed-ended questions where you're, you're seeking, hoping, driving for yes. I mean, we stay out of those entirely. It, you know, like we are out of the yes business. We used to say yes is nothing without how. In point of fact, yes is nothing and how is everything. So, I mean, it just, yes is just so problematic across the board. Even if somebody, yes at best is an aspiration, at best. It doesn't involve implementation. People are worried about what's packed into it. They're, it's just so problematic and you don't get those problems with a no. Now, when you're going for a no-oriented closed into question, essentially a call to action uh, to trigger a decision. Are you against this? Do you disagree? Is now a bad time to talk? Have you given up on? The, the no is a surgical strike that in, in, is a call to action, a request to proceed, uh, a, a request to be allowed to proceed. Are you against me sharing some ideas with you? That's a request to be allowed to proceed. Um, are you against paying for this by five o'clock? Uh, you know, that's, that's, um, when you're under a deadline, you know, the no oriented is, uh, uh, what I would refer to as a call to action. And those are examples of call to action 
or potentially a thought pattern interrupt. Is it a ridiculous idea if I share some thoughts with you when someone's going on and on and on and on? So the uh, no is to trigger a decision, which is a call to action or to get somebody to allow you to do something. That's principle, the principle design of a no-oriented question. Now, interestingly enough, the open-ended questions, which in a black swan method, we focus down almost exclusively on what and how, are really designed to create thinking as opposed to get an answer. Now, it'd be nice if you could get an answer also. But if you're asking me something impossible or extremely difficult to do, if I say, how am I supposed to do that? I'm really trying to trigger your thought processes and get you to think about the complexity of your ask. Now, it's ideal if you answer. What I'm really trying to do is get you to stop and think. So you're taught in most business scenarios, almost everybody's taught to gather information via good questions. The point, the fact, if it's a really good question, it makes them stop and think. And people can only stop and think in depth so many times where two or three really good water how questions and they are out of gas. And that's assuming that they had gas in the tank to begin with, which means what time of day is it? How well fed are they? How much sleep did they get last night? Like you can't get a good answer to a what or how question after one o'clock in the afternoon for nearly anyone. Yeah. I've seen it with this podcast when I love to ask what and how questions because I love to think alongside the people I talk to. I, I'm a coach. I have a psychology background. What and how questions are really at the core of what we do, especially what questions. Uh, how questions I've always been drawn to because I'm probably into achievement and like getting to a solution. Uh, whereas there's what questions in, in therapy and in traditional psychology a lot of people love those types of questions. For you, I'm curious though, and this is going to get into uh, more of a what type of question for you. As I'm hearing you, I'm hearing like consultants would do a lot of, you know, close-ended questions and maybe a therapist would do, or a coach would do a lot of what and how questions. And your background's interesting because you have a background in teaching. You do a lot of public speaking, you coach people, you consult, and you've been in the trenches doing the thing and executing as a negotiator. And by the way, you're running a company uh, and so leading other people as well. So you wear all these different hats. So I'm curious for you, what makes you feel most alive? Which of those really gets you excited as you sit here today? Not necessarily what excited you 10 years ago, but what causes you to get really excited as far as your role? Yeah, well, helping people get better, helping people solve problems, helping people accelerate their lives. Um, and and that's just, you know, I love teaching this stuff. I love talking about it. I, I love people when they catch on and people catch on at different rates of velocity, some right away, some takes a really long time. But the really gratifying thing about this entire thing that we refer to as the black swan method. Um, I'm going to tell you what people tell us a lot and what they don't say is important is what they do say. When people start catching on to this, they say, this is going to change my life. You know, I'm, I'm happier now. I just had, I didn't even have to make any more money. I'm making more money, but I made a deal 
it's going to change my life. Now, as inspiring as that is to hear, and it is, the really important part of that is they're not succeeding at other people's expense. Because if they were, they'd say, man, I had them over a barrel. Oh, my God, I killed them in this negotiation. I mean, I slaughtered. None of our clients say that. None of them. Um, one guy in particular, one of our best clients, um, is in our top-level coaching group. He said, "I, you guys, I'm making more money being collaborative than I ever made being cutthroat. Now, he was winning at other people's expenses before, and he's winning with people now, and he's making more money than he ever made at other people's expenses. That's cool. When you write a book, is there a concern that the tools on influence, persuasion, uh, get into the wrong hands and are used for, let's say, negative outcomes and, and negative consequences? Uh, no. I mean, I can't be responsible for everybody on the planet. You know, we we put out the best tools that are out there, period. Uh, and it's like building the world's best scalpel. Now, it was designed to save lives. Can I stop people from using it uh, with malintent? No, I can't. But when uh, if when you get when you learn a black swan method, the other thing we teach people to do is to sniff out the people that are trying to cut your throat, trying to negotiate against your interests and to walk away. Like 7% of hostage negotiations in negatively were 93% successful, 93%. But 7% of the time it goes bad. And we got to recognize that we were taught to recognize it and adjust accordingly. There are going to be people out there that are going to take advantage of you, recognize it and, and walk away. And no, I'm not responsible. I'm not accountable for everybody on earth. If and when a hostage negotiation went bad, how did you make sure that your identity wasn't completely knocked down or beat up as a result of what transpired during during that situation? Yeah, it was a tough one. Um, fortunately, I'd been inoculated a little bit. I didn't realize it. My former boss, Gary Nessner, um, and... I learned a lot from Gary in the FBI. I mean, uh, consider him a mentor, learned a lot from him. He used to always say best chance of success, best chance of success. And I repeated and still repeat a lot of things that he said. And when one went bad, first one went bad. I remember saying to myself, ah, I guess best chance of success means you're not always going to be successful. And so he, I was inoculated a little bit from it at that time. And then also when things go bad, you got two choices. You can grow or you can quit. I chose to grow. Where do you think you grew the most? Wow. Um, wow. Uh, I think probably I set out to learn the most the first time that somebody got killed in a kidnapping internationally that I worked. Uh, it was a Burnham Sabero case, uh, almost 22, 21, 22 years ago now. And um, I thought, you know, I can either quit or I could get better because I never want this to happen again. So I set out consciously to learn 
And that was the first time I went outside of law enforcement to learn about negotiation. I ended up going to Harvard and learning from those guys as a result, really a direct result of what, what happened in that case. A lot of people say that pain is like the ultimate teacher and that when you go through pain, it's a great opportunity to learn. Do you feel like you learn more from pain or more from success? Like, how do you, how do you, uh, I don't think anybody that? learns from success. You know, the, the great Irish philosopher, Colin McGregor said, I win or I learn, which means, you, you know, you, you know, when you win, it probably at best, you know, reinforces some of your best practices, some of your proper practices. You know, there's a fair amount of luck involved at all times. And winning, you know, there was some luck there. So you might take more credit for the success that you were entitled to. So I don't, I don't know that you really learn anything when you win. It's interesting when you were talking about the successes of people that go through your programs. Uh, once again, it's interesting to me, how, when you're keynoting, how do you bring in questioning? How do you bring in active listening, uh, empathy, uh, take us to a, a Chris Voss keynote and what it might sound like, because they kind of go against each other in my mind. It's like, okay, you're going to deliver a message, but I'm curious how you can teach a lot of the tools of negotiation, which are not necessarily keynoting. It's a lot of listening, empathy, building rapport, uh, asking questions, uh, a lot of things we've already talked about. How do you infuse that into a keynote um, when when you're taking on that task? Well, my uh, I, my my keynotes feel very interactive. I mean, I realize that in point of fact, it's one way communication. And if I don't do everything I could possibly do to uh, keep you engaged, that's on me. And so I will use a lot of humor that might be appropriate for the moment. But I want to say a lot of things to catch people off guard. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll tee up a situation, and then I'll say, "All right, so you're me. What do you say?" And then I'm going to go dead silent and I'm going to wait for somebody to respond. And I'm going to say, look, guys, I don't know there's 300 of you out here, but uh, I'm not going on until somebody says something. You know, I work very hard throughout the keynote um, to keep people engaged. And it's a whole bunch of tools. Uh, I love doing keynotes. I love it. But I realize that the, the keynote speaker has got to do a lot. Because otherwise people are sitting there passively and I'm going to be boring real quick if I don't watch it. Yeah, it's interesting because you're bringing in, I mentioned at the, at the beginning, you said there's, for example, three things you could do. Your daughter, playfulness, uh, getting them to say no, and then mirroring. Um, and so those were like three of the tools and you're bringing that up even as you're talking about uh, your keynote. You mentioned going to Harvard. I'm curious for you, and you talk about this a bit in your book, how much of your learning has been from reading, I mean, you're you you have researched this stuff. You've read it. Uh, there the amount of books that are referenced in your book. Uh, that there's a ton of them. Uh, it's clear that you're interested in this topic and you're constantly trying to learn both best practices and maybe not the best practices. How much of your knowledge is from learning compared to experience compared to on the job learning from mentors and other people that you've experienced out in the field? How would you say? your philosophy on negotiation has been molded and shaped from, from those different elements and perhaps other elements as well. Yeah. You can't, you can't read enough. You can't learn enough. You can't listen enough. 
I mean, and it, it is, it, it is when it's something that you love and I love this. I mean, it, it's, it's incredible. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I listen to podcasts. Um, uh, two of my favorites are Lex Friedman and Andrew Huberman. I'm picking that stuff up. Uh, I, I, I get guidance from both of those guys a lot on what I pick up to read. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interacting with my team. Everybody on my team, we love this stuff. I mean, we, we're breathing. We love talking about it. And so we're constantly bouncing ideas off of each other and evolving. I mean, I'm learning from everywhere I can, I can, I can find it. I, I understand now why I think I'm told, I think I've heard that like Warren Buffett evidently reads five hours a day. You just, you just got, you got to soak it in. I mean, so he just, he needs to refine what he's learning and how he's doing what he's doing all the time. Warren Buffett, Mark Cuban, like everybody I know out there that's truly successful, they're reading a lot. You have a, a line in the book where you mentioned that smart people have trouble being negotiators. And I'm curious about curiosity. It's well, let, yeah, let, let, yeah, let's say high IQ people have trouble being good negotiators. So I, I would be an amazing negotiator and I think I would, <laughs> I, would, I would be amazing, but it actually speaks to curiosity a little bit. And yeah. I'm, I've become really curious about curiosity. I find each year I live on this planet, I start valuing people that are curious. I start trying to lean into curiosity. The thing I've probably focused on trying to grow myself is my own curiosity. And it is amazing because we started this conversation with my children Children are innately curious. I mean, they are these amazingly curious people. And yet our society or our systems or something happens where adults tend to maybe be less curious over the years. Uh, as you're reading, as you're listening to podcasts, it's it, podcasts, it's clear you remain curious. But I'm curious about how curiosity plays a role in negotiation and and what role curiosity plays in negotiation and when it may be helpful and and when it might be harmful as well. Well, I don't know that it's ever harmful. Um, curiosity is a superpower. Derek Gaunt on my team is is uh, constantly saying, be curious, be curious, be curious. I mean, it is a superpower. When you're curious, you're in a positive frame of mind. Uh, I have reason for saying that you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. You take in more information. You see patterns more quickly. It's impossible to be curious and in a negative frame of mind simultaneously. And if you're smarter in a positive frame of mind, then by definition, when you're in a negative frame of, in a negative frame of mind, you are dumber. So curiosity keeps you from being dumber because it's impossible to be curious and negative. I mean, it's a positive, interested approach. It also affects your demeanor. So if you're genuinely curious, not judgmentally curious, but you know what? Why why just say that? I mean, it's genuinely curious. Or why did you say that? <laughs> it's judgmentally curious. You know, if you're genuinely curious, the other side is encouraged. If you're actually interested, they're going to give you more information. The, 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 the emotional contagion is going to be positive. So you're both going to collaborate together. Nassim Nicholas Taleb wrote a book in 2012 called Anti-Fragile. He coined the term. He said, to be curious is to be anti-fragile. And anti-fragile are things that gain from disorder, that get smarter from trauma, post-traumatic stress growth, not disorder. 
You know, curiosity is the key to so many things. It's a great, it's a great attribute. As you're talking, what I think I'm most curious about in, in all my research and watching you on podcasts and interviews, I was curious about how you present. And from my vantage point, you present very even and very even keeled. And I'm curious, like, what is going on underneath the hood? Like, are you someone who's even from an emotional standpoint? Uh, or are you someone who is able to manage those emotions and, and show up in a in a different way and present in a more intentional way. Like take us underneath the hood, even if we go to like a hostile negotiation where there are lives on the line and how you present might be different than what's going on internally when it comes to your thoughts and feelings. Uh, give us an underneath the hood look at, at what Chris is like. Well, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in a process. You know, I, 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 maybe one of the things that I learned early on is just have faith in a process, which gives you your best chance of success and understand what process works best. Like when life's on the line, hostage negotiation stuff, the process, you know, is a calming, soothing voice, no matter what. And that's practice. You fall to your highest level of preparation, your practice, you practice it, and you can do it. You don't practice, you can't do it. There's no way around it. It's a perishable skill. When uh, non-hostage negotiations... Like if I'm having fun with it, if, I, if I'm having a ball, I'm going to be smarter. I'm going to be more adaptable. You're going to be more collaborative. Like I, I, I placed a phone call the other day. Um, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, sometimes I forget to walk my own talk, but I got a medical bill, $3,300, which I'm prepared to pay. And it's about 1030 in the morning. I'm, you know, I'm heavily caffeinated. I got plenty of gas in the tank. I'm in a lighthearted mood. And I thought, you know, just let me just call the provider and joke around with them. Because, you know, in, in many cases, 10% is almost a, a throwaway. And I thought, all right, so if I'm on the phone with them for half an hour, if I could get 10% off this, you know, that's $300. That's equivalent of $600 an hour. I work for $600 an hour. I, you know, I'll take that. That's a, that's a working wage. You know, so let me call them on the phone, see if I can at least get my 10%. And I'm joking around with these people on the ability department, this young lady. And in hindsight, you know, I realize, you know, it's 1030 in the morning for me. I'm probably at my peak positivity. She's in the same time zone, probably same peak positivity. I got 80% off the bill. And I joked around with her. And I, I you know, m the first words out of my mouth was, soon, you know, she, the hello on their end was not, how can I help you? You know, it was like, you know, it was like, I'm tired of being bothered with you deadbeats that are whining and complaining as to why you can't pay for bills that you had. And so when she answered the phone, I go, I owe you money. She's like, who, who is this? What's your name? Let me look up your account. I go, gave her my name. I said, I owe you money. Like I was joking around about it. And she goes, oh, yes, you do owe us money. But I could tell from her tone of voice that she was. And it instantly put her in a positive frame of mind. And, you know, because I'm joking around, it went well. I had fun with it. And the outcome far exceeded what I anticipated. So much of your work is around empathy and trying to understand where someone's coming from. I've talked, we've had a lot of Navy SEALs on here, military people that I've had beers with. And when I talk about empathy, they they sort of cringe. And I understand their perspective. They've seen some of the darkness that exists. You've seen some of the darkness that exists 
in our society. And they try to challenge me and say, well, maybe I'd be more interested in compassion. Like compassion is something that I could get around more than empathy. Um, what's, what's your perspective on compassion compared to empathy um, as it relates to negotiation? But I guess we could even zoom out and look at it generally speaking as well. Well, this gets very much into what your definition of empathy is. And it has gotten convoluted into sympathy and a lot of other things. And empathy is really about demonstrating understanding. And it's really taking it a step further than simply knowing where someone's coming up from or understanding. It's demonstrating understanding without agreement, without judgment. And that was the reason I went to collaborate with Harvard in the first place, because in hostage negotiation, we learned empathy is articulating your understanding of the other side's perspective, period. No judgment, no agreement, no disagreement, just a straight transmission of information. And then I came across Bob Manukin's book, who's the head of the program on negotiation at Harvard, Beyond Winning. And his separate second chapter is the best, cha best chapter on empathy I've ever read, still to this day, better than anything we wrote in Never Split the Difference. And he says flat out, empathy is not about liking or agreeing with the other side. And I, I read that, and I thought, we're on the same sheet of music. So if you can confine yourself to that, that no agreement or liking, it's just articulating the other side's perspective, empathy is pretty easy. Uh, but some people have difficulty because they feel that understanding is agreement. And, and if, you can, if you can decouple it from that, then it becomes actually a tool for thinking. It becomes a really great cognitive reasoning tool for you to really understand, assess where the other side's coming from. So if it's just about the transmission of information, as Stephen Kotler would say, and then compassion is the reaction. Empathy is not a reaction. It's just about articulating someone's perspective. And most people don't see it like that. But if you can see it like that, then a Navy SEAL, no matter what you've seen in the world, no, your darkness, it actually helps you um, process the darkness that you may have seen yourself. Can you explain uh, compassion is is a reaction to empathy and just help me understand that better? Well, the reaction to the transmission of the information is compassion. Sympathy is a reaction. Compassion is a reaction. If I simply say to you, you feel this because that's me simply transmitting information about your feelings and why you feel that way. I Compassion is not required. Now, it tends to be a compassionate thing to do. It tends to trigger compassion and understanding and bonding in the other side. That's their reaction to it. But empathy is just straight out, here's, here's how you feel about this. And in my, in my uh, Joint Terrorist Task Force days in the New York City Division of the FBI, when we were, when we were held, holding terrorist trials, in civilian court, not in Guantanamo military courts, shielded from secrecy, but in open civilian court, getting Muslims to testify against Muslims. When I would first approach them, I would say, you believe that for the last 200 years, there's been a succession of American governments that have been anti-Islamic. And then I would stop talking. That's empathy. You believe this to be true. 
I don't argue with it. I don't justify, condone it, disagree with it in any way. I just lay it out there. And every time I said that, they would hesitate and kind of look around and go, yeah. And then they would connect with me because they felt I connected with them. I never argued the point, never disagreed with it, never agreed with it. I don't believe that to be true, but by me stating your beliefs, it shows me as being fearless. Like I can articulate your beliefs without arguing, without being afraid of them. I then become a straight shooter, somebody that you can rely on. And that's what a lot of people I think miss about it. Yeah. And uh, you capture this in your book really nicely. And if you're wrong on your hypothesis, then they tell you, no, no, that's, that's, that's actually not how I feel. And it gives them an opportunity to speak up on how they feel. My uncle is a therapist and he's very blunt and very direct and sometimes runs hot. And I asked him once, I said, his name's Bob, uncle Bob, like, how does that work as a therapist when you start connecting dots? He says, well, Brian, I could say, Hey, uh, Chris, it sounds like your dad was really hard on you. And, uh, put a lot of standards and expectations on you and you're still trying to live up to your dad's expectations. And if they disagree, cool, we can throw that out the window and we can try to figure out what the heck's going on. And so um, I, I, that was something that, that really stuck with me in, in my work when, I, when I'm coaching people. And I think one of the things you, you do a really nice job of, again, articulating the book is really focusing on the who, who you're dealing with. And to me, curiosity, empathy, listening, that's how we can find out who someone is. And then from there, we can get to, to what we're dealing with. And I'm curious for you, though, as you run your business and you've got all these people that are knowledgeable about what you all train and what you all teach, how often are you actually not tapping into the negotiation tools and you're actually maybe tapping into something different um, for your team and to operate your business in a high functioning way. How often do you have to actually adjust the, the, the game, so to speak, knowing that you're dealing with people that are, are sort of using the same deck of cards, so to speak. Uh, do you have to adjust the, the, the tone? Do you have to adjust how you're approaching it? Or is it, is it the same game that you're playing? So no, we use we use we think of it as a very collaborative process, you know, for long term trusted relationships. So we use this stuff with each other all the time. I mean, it's standard operating procedure to use this with each other because we're you know, it's collaborative. We believe it's collaborative. Now, could somebody use it in a non collaborative fashion? Of course, but my only mistakes are when I don't use it enough because people people need to know that. I know where they're coming from. And the only way that they know I know where they're coming from is for me to throw it out there and check in with them. So, yeah, it's, it's standard operating procedure with us in all of our internal conversations. What gets in the way of you not using it? Uh, you know, I get, I'm a time is money person. So, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very directive. And sometimes I'm not direct. I'm not, I don't listen enough. You know, I like getting stuff done. I'm very action oriented. You know, I believe uh, comfortable inaction is, you know, the real cost, the risk and cost of comfortable inaction. I think JFK said a long time ago, um, I believe the clock is ticking. And, you know, I believe that if data improves design, 
that we execute and learn constantly. We're going to get feedback on what we think the strategy is, and we're going to execute as we implement, or you, we're going to learn as we implement. When I hear you say the clock is tick ticking, I think about legacy. Is legacy something that that you care about that you think about? I don't think about it. No, no. It's you know. I think that uh, nah, that that I my reaction to that off the top of my head is, you know, that's uh, that's ego ego satisfaction. Um, yeah, what do I hope it says on my tombstone? Uh, a good man. Other than that, I'm not. I'm not looking for a lot. And you are a great storyteller, and your storytelling comes across not just in your book, but your ability to to verbalize. And I'm sure it's what makes you uh, a great keynote as well. What are what are your what's your perspective on what makes great storytelling? What causes us to fall in love with the story? Well, yeah, it's a it's a tough question because sometimes you got to lead with the punchline, and sometimes you got to go with the punchline last. So, um, you know, can, uh, do you tell it in a way that people relate to? Or do you tell it in a way where you're just entertaining yourself? I mean, those are some interesting fine lines. Uh, and you can be, you can fall in love with a story and just entertain yourself the whole time. And people catch on to that really quickly. Or are you engage with them. Uh, are you, are you human? Are you appreciative of the fact that um, it's hard to pay attention if the guy's not engaging. So I try to be as interactive and as human as possible. I, I'm, I'm not a rope kind of guy. I'm, I think of myself as a very ordinary human being and nothing extraordinary about me at all. As a matter of fact, somebody once asked me, uh, how describe yourself in three words. And my immediate answer was deeply flawed human. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a regular guy and I, and I try to, I try to come off that way as possible, as much as possible. You mentioned listening. It can sometimes get in the way of your ability to lead your team. And then you're talking about being a deeply flawed human. Listening is one of your big, big keys to being a great, ne great negotiator. What have you done through the years to improve your, your listening skills? Wow. You know, it's a constant work in progress because there's, there's two issues. First of all, they're perishable. So if you're not paying attention on a regular basis, they just, they, they erode and they go away. You got to really watch out for how perishable listening is. And then secondly, if you're paying attention, then there's always something new to learn. Like there's a new application. There's a new combination. Maybe somebody on the team has come up with something new. So trying to do both um, is, is both a challenge and, you know, uh, an adventure. You talk so much about collaborating and learning and using the team and even your co-author, you give a lot of credit to in the acknowledgement section. You even said we wrote the book today. Um, but you're also very blunt about how compromise is not the way to go when you're thinking about negotiation. So I'm curious about the distinction between compromise and collaboration and, and what distinguishes those two words, because it sounds like one you really value in collaboration. Whereas I think in the book, you even say compromise is bullshit. Like compromise is, is not what you're going for. So parse that out for us so that we can better understand the distinction between compromising and collaborating. Yeah. Compromise is not compromise. Is lazy compromise is not collaborate. It's like, well, I can't make up my mind who's right and who's wrong. So we take a little bit of yours, a little bit of mine. We'll quit. I mean, that's a lack of exploration. Collaboration is, you know, let, let's see if we can find a better answer together. And then also, 
what's the possibility that you're completely right and I'm completely wrong? You know, don't let your ego get in the way of a better idea. The other side might have a better idea. They got a they got a different look on it. Like be prepared to fully accept that they may have a better idea across the board. And don't let your don't let your ego get in the way. I mean, I, I've seen so many instances where compromise was lazy and misinterpreted and never interpreted the way it was originally intended. One of my favorites, and it's really faded into the background of today's society. But Colin Kaepernick kneeling uh, during the national anthem, that was a compromise move, well-intentioned by Kaepernick to show more respect to the flag. And nobody remembers that. Like the two sides ran off with that in completely different directions. He began to be celebrated for what was not his original intent. He was originally sitting entirely on the bench and he was gracious enough to agree to a meeting with a former member of the special forces Caucasian to boot white dude sits down with them and Kaepernick is willing to have the conversation God bless him and a guy says you know in the special forces we would kneel at gravesides to show respect for our fallen comrades so as a compromise, Kaepernick agrees to take a knee based on the heartfelt case that a Caucasian member of the military got him to agree to. And it got worse from there. Like nobody remembers that he made that adjustment to show more respect for the flag as opposed to less. And I think that's a classic example of how compromise gets misinterpreted and 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 just goes bad across the board. And I and I know many far less visible compromises that were all misinterpreted and left everybody unhappy. Mm. What would you have coached Kaepernick on if you were if you were on his team? You know, he's sitting on the bench with the towel over his head. Uh, Nate Boyer is is the football player that you're talking about. We had Nate on the podcast. He's done some incredible stuff with our military. He's a really impressive guy. And actually, when we had him on the podcast, I asked, is there anything you don't want to talk about? Just like I asked you. And he's like, yeah, I'd rather not talk about the Kaepernick situation. And so it's interesting uh, that that experience is, is such a unique one. And you're right. They both were trying to do good um, together. Yeah. That, that was the goal there. But if you're, you know, let's just say you're on Kaepernick's team and he he's sitting on the bench in protest. Uh, what, what would, and he says, Hey, Hey, Chris, I'm trying to figure out what, what to do with this. What, what's your messaging to him back then? Well, I, I, I think the whole thing ran away from him. I mean, uh, and it would be very difficult. He, he, he's, he's got put up so much on a pedestal. I mean, he didn't start sitting on a bench till he got benched. He didn't have a problem with anything in the NFL while he was starting and he was winning. And he had uh, Harbaugh was his coach. He's got a Caucasian coach. He's bringing out the best in him. I mean, the the head coach, quarterback synergy, I think, is so underestimated. And they were right for each other. They were perfect for each other. Harbaugh brought out the best in him. And he probably felt incredible. And then things started to go bad. And I think he had people whispering in his ear. And people forget that he's a young guy. I mean, how young are these guys? 
they're, they're navigating millions upon millions. They're, they're navigating the, the uh, adulation of millions. They're in a spotlight. They're probably thrust into this sort of a spotlight before they're mentally equipped to handle it. Now, a, a private counsel demonstrating empathy, helping him sort through why he's making the decisions that he's making at the point in time. I don't know that it would have changed the outcome at all. I thought what Nate Boyer did was phenomenal. And I think I would have had conversations with him, much broader conversations. I think, you know, he was a little lost having had a mentor that, that put him on top of the world. And now suddenly his mentor is gone. I mean, that's going to be destabilizing for anybody. Not an easy thing uh, holistically when you look at the position he put in and at the age that he was thrust under all those pressures simultaneously. It's interesting. Uh, I'm going to bring this back to you, but I actually spent some time with Kaepernick right right after he made it to the Super Bowl. So he went from, I think he was a second round pick to leading the 49ers to the Super Bowl. Uh, and then the next year he was really becoming like a star um, after that Super Bowl. And people forget, but Alex Smith was the quarterback. They went to Kaepernick. Kaepernick helped them get to the Super Bowl. And then he struggled from a football standpoint after that. But I got to spend some time with him right after he had just made it to the Super Bowl. And he was a normal guy. And, you know, just a very normal. I, I hung out with him for an entire day and shot hoops with him, spent time with him. And he was just like a normal guy. And as you were telling your story, you said, I'm not extraordinary. Like, I'm just like this ordinary guy. And, and you talk about how you're not interested in legacy because legacy may be attached to ego and, and some other stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering a little bit about ego because I understand why ego could get in the way for a negotiator and could cause us to act in a way that might not be helpful for the goal or the mission or the process. And I have a hard time imagining that you haven't had ego to get to the place to get to negotiate what you're negotiating, um, given given your background and given uh, where you came from. And I also think with any athlete, Kaepernick or name your athlete, like there has to be this unshakable belief that you have in your ability to do something that doesn't mean you then lead with that ego or arrogance or whatever that word might be when you're in it, because that you, you might recognize that that may not serve you in that space, but I would imagine there is something in you. It doesn't have to mean that you believe you're extraordinary, but I'm the right person for this job. I've trained, I've read everything I can, uh, whether that's ego or something else, there's gotta be something inside you that says I'm the right person for this job. Because if you don't have that, I, I think, I think you're lost. Um, so I'm yeah, curious to get yeah. your thoughts on on when maybe ego can serve you. And obviously you've hit on when it can get in the way. But for you, is there a part of you that does say, no, like I've got some special talent. And and I do a lot of personality assessments with my clients and personality assessments are complicated and they're definitely imperfect. Um, but there's one piece that always comes out with a lot of the C-suite executives that I work with is this belief that they do have some special talent. They do have some capacity and some capability. And so I'm, I'm curious for you, like, where is there that belief that, yeah, you know what? I am the right person for the job. I am the right person to give this keynote to a thousand executives of some fortune 100 company or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, well, that's the depth of that question. Like, what drives us? You know, is it ego? Is it fear? You know, uh, I, a phrase that I use, uh, two lines of code. 
um, like what are the two lines of code deep in the heart of somebody's somebody's programming and that make a difference in all of us and probably when we were two three four years old you know somebody said something to us that stuck in our brain and you know why don't people succeed when there's completely self-defeating like yeah, when I when I told you to show up for work on time, all you're gonna do is show up for work on time. You don't show up, uh, and then you want to blame people for your failures, or you know if if I hired you to do a job and <laughs> you know, thank God I got a good accountant now. I mean I got accountants in the past that I paid them to do jobs that they, they didn't actually do. Like how hard is it for you to actually do what you said you were gonna do? Like what's in your brain that's defeating you? This self defeating behavior. Or in me, like like when I was four years old and, you know, did mom say to me at the right time, like, you're capable of anything. You could do anything. Like, I don't know. I, I You know, I, I don't know what, what those two lines of code are that somebody planted in my brain. I just know that there are people that you ask themselves, like, what did somebody say to you at the wrong time that is just stuck in your head? And you just can't get it out of there. Why do, you, why do you keep beating yourself when the world is doing everything it can to make you successful? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. It, ego, fear, two lines of code. You know, maybe you and I sit around with a cigar and a scotch uh, around a campfire sometime, figure it out. That'd be, that'd be my pleasure to do. When you mentioned something earlier, like you're not a rote guy. Like you, you like... Uh, nuance and probably like things to be exploratory, I think was the word you used. I, I recently had someone on the podcast that said, you know, there's two types of, of, of learners. There are ones that are explorers and exploiters and an explorer likes to go and try to figure things out and see the world and, and they need space and time to explore. An exploiter is going to take something from a book and they're going to remember it. And then they're going to exploit that information. And our school system is in large part set up for exploiting, Hey, learn the information, exploit it, and then give the answers to the test. But a lot of our society, a lot of the real world requires exploration. Uh, for you, it sounds like you like exploring, but you've also exploited a lot of these tools and these frameworks from psychology, from philosophy, uh, from negotiation, uh, science and research. And so for you, are you more interested in exploration at this point in your career or exploiting? Like what gets you excited and makes you feel most alive? Well, the exploration absolutely uh, is a lot more fun. And, you know, I'm not above exploiting. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll exploit them every now and then. I exploit on a regular basis to keep the negative stuff, the friction out of my life. And, and, and you know, everybody on my our team, I mean, there's so much less friction in our life. I'm on an airplane the other day. And I want to get a free hamburger, you know, and uh, I, and I'm gambling. They got them. You know, there's a phrase, never be mean to somebody who could hurt you by doing nothing. So if I don't ask for uh, something I know they have, they can say, hey, you know, we're all out. Uh, I approach them with a completely different approach. And a guy comes running out with my hamburger a couple of minutes later, happy as a clam and looking after me as a result. So did I exploit my knowledge of human nature at that point in time to get a free hamburger? Yes, I did. <laughs> so, but I love the exploration of the process at the same time. I happened to leave them better off than I found them also. So it left a positive deposit in the karma bank of the universe. What do you like to explore beyond negotiation? Like everything about life, you know, um, you know, what's in the world. Like my favorite kind of vacation 
I don't, I don't happen to own a Harley now. I, you know, my motorcycle that I had when I was living in DC, um, my favorite vacation was when I got on that bike and had no idea where I was going and ended up in a lot of places that I did not expect to be. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bountiful, interesting world out there. If you give it a chance. I think that's a beautiful place for us to close. Uh, Chris, if people want to learn more about you, the Black Swan Group, where's the best place for them to do that? We got so much free stuff on our website, blackswanltd.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-N-L-T-D.com. The first thing you should try to pick up is subscribe to our newsletter, which is free. It's concise and it's actionable. It's called The Edge. There's a tab in the upper right-hand corner. And then let the information come to you. The Edge is the gateway to everything. We got a ton of stuff for you to learn from and advance your skills to take you to the next level where we will meet you when you get there and take you even further. So our website, blackswanltd.com. And look, we have a, a lot of authors on here and I read a lot of books as a result of it. I actually joke like, I'd much rather watch Netflix and an interesting documentary than read a book. Um, but because I'm doing these podcasts, I end up reading a lot of, a lot of books, your books spectacular. It Thank It you. is, it is, it's just, it's a fun read. It's got stories. If you're into science and research, it's got data. Uh, I think people, some people like data, some people like stories. Uh, I think we all like, if you're reading, you're probably interested in learning. And uh, Chris does just an awesome job with the book and and learning. As far as social media goes, are you active anywhere that, that we should send people to if they want to continue following you as well? Uh, I'm on Instagram at the FBI negotiator. Perfect. And you got his his radio voice there as well. I'm on Twitter <laughs> uh, at Brian Levinson, LinkedIn at Brian Levinson as well. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Chris, I hope I can grab a scotch and a cigar with you. I don't smoke cigars that often, but I will if I'm with you. Um, and next time you're in DC, hopefully we can link up and meet in person. And it's one of the things you talked about in the book is just the power of connection and human beings and being in person places. And certainly coming out of the pandemic, I, for one, uh, am craving those connections and going out and seeking them. And I encourage everybody to continue to seek those connections because humans are meant to, to be connected uh, in a multitude of ways, but certainly in person. So thanks so much for your time. I know you're a busy guy, so really appreciate you uh, giving us your knowledge that we could exploit. And also hopefully we got to explore some stuff as well. Thanks, Brian. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. So if you're genuinely curious, not judgmentally curious, but you know what? Why why just say that? I mean, that's genuinely curious. Or why did you say that? <laughs> it's judgmentally curious. You know, if you're genuinely curious, the other side is encouraged. If you're actually interested, they're going to give you more information. The, the 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 emotional contagion is going to be positive. So you're both going to collaborate together. 